Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020 and for the Socialist Party as well. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and advocate for the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So we're doing uh, question and answers today. I'll say a few things first. Uh, But next week, we're going to have, this will be the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we'll have as a guest, Promise Lee, who's a socialist activist from Hong Kong, who's currently based in Los Angeles, where he is a tenant organizer in the Los Angeles Chinatown. And he's a prolific writer. His articles have appeared in Against the Current, Green Left, Jacobin, The Nation, and many other publications. And he's going to discuss why we need socialist internationalism rather than this capitalist multipolarity that some people are talking about. And he'll reference that discussion to how the left, uh, different parts of the left responded to the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, which was one of the litmus tests that our international solidarity uh, has faced recently. And as background for that discussion, you might want to read his article against multipolar imperialism and towards socialist multipolarity, uh, which we'll put a link to that in the chat. So, you know, the, the headlines still today are around the war in Israel and Palestine. And the movement is uh, demanding a ceasefire. It's growing. And I hope people are participating in those actions, some of which are going on as we speak. And the situation in Gaza just keeps getting worse. They're bombing schools. Uh, They're telling people to move south, further south, from where they moved to be uh, supposedly in a safe zone. I mean, it looks like the right wing of the Israeli government is moving forward with its ethnic cleansing plan to push the Palestinians out of Gaza and into the Sinai uh, Peninsula in Egypt. Um, But, you know, we, we need to keep demanding ceasefire and humanitarian aid and a prisoner exchange. Uh, of both Palestinians and Israelis that are held hostage. But those, I think, should just be the first steps in what we're demanding the U.S. government to support. I think it's time, you know, right now to to advocate that the U.S. government, you know, flip do 180 degree on its historic policy of giving unconditional support to Israel and start putting pressure on the Israeli government as well as the Palestinian Authority to start negotiating toward a real political solution. Instead of a ceasefire that ends up being a pause in this endless conflict, we need to be demanding we go straight to a political solution that replaces attempts at a military solution, which neither side is gonna be able to impose and it wouldn't be just in any case. The U.S. aid it gives to both Israel and the Palestinian Authority gives it enormous leverage over both entities. That's what the BDS movement is about with respect to leveraging Israel to respect Palestinian human rights and negotiating good faith toward a political solution. I mean, the first thing, and we should be demanding this now, is the U.S. cut its military aid to Israel until the war stops, until they start respecting uh, Palestinian rights and negotiating good faith toward a political solution. Now, both sides need new political leadership. I think that's pretty clear. I've talked about how the Palestinians need new elections. They haven't had any since 2006, but this time using 
proportional representation. Both Hamas and Fatah are not very popular with the Palestinians. The polls show that. Most Palestinians oppose the authoritarian fundamentalism of Hamas and the corrupt autocracy of Fatah. Um, new elections using proportional representation would elect a Palestinian legislative council that would be legitimate in the eyes of both Palestinians and the international community and could be a credible partner in negotiating a political solution. And on the Israeli side, Netanyahu is also enormously unpopular. And he's using this war just to stay in power in his coalition with the far right parties that want to push all the uh, Palestinians out of Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel itself. Um, and if the war stops, that coalition is going to fall apart because the right doesn't want the war to stop. Netanyahu would be blamed and they'd have new elections. Um, and if the war is stopped by a sustained ceasefire, uh, Netanyahu's coalition is going to fall apart and new elections are likely to bring forth a more pragmatic coalition that then can be pushed to negotiate in good faith. And, and really the international community and the U.S. certainly needs to be part of it, have got to push for that. Uh, because we, if you just leave it to the warring parties now in Israel-Palestine, I don't think we're going to get to a political solution. Now, I said in that paper I, I linked to uh, last week that I think negotiations uh, should start with the two-state solution, at least to get the process started. Um, that is what the international community from uh, Resolution 242 in 1967 and many subsequent resolutions that affirm that position have been calling for. I think that can be the starting. Now, that process could lead to a one-state solution with a secular, democratic, binational state with equal rights for all. Or I think more likely, if it's not a two-state solution, it could be the hybrid model of confederation with the Palestinian government in the Palestinian territories and Israeli government in the uh, pre-1967 Israeli territory uh, with equal rights and freedom of movement across the whole Israel-Palestine area. And then they would have some functions they would share. And so it's kind of like a one-state solution, at least with respect to the thing most talked about is security forces. Um, but whether it's a two-state or a hybrid model, I think those are the most likely or a one-state solution. What I think is most important is we have to recognize that both the Palestinians and the Israelis are oppressed nationalities that have the right to self-determination. Of course, the problem is they both feel they have that right on the same land. So I don't think a majority on either side has enough trust in the other side uh, after all that has happened to uh, get behind a one-state solution. I don't think the 7 million Israeli Jews will accept a Palestinian majority government, which was what a one-state solution would be, even though the majority of Israeli Jews are not European. They're not of European ancestry. They're of Arab ancestry. They're from other Middle Eastern and North African countries. But they are actually you know, more supportive of the right wing in Israel right now, the Mizrahi uh, uh, Jews from, you know, um, the Middle East and North Africa, as opposed to the Ashkenazi Jews from, from Europe. In any case, then you've got about 7 million Palestinians in the territories of Israel and Palestine, and another 7 million Palestinians 
uh, in exile in the diaspora. Um, and it's unlikely they would accept a government where the uh, Israeli Jews had a major role because, you know, it's, it's a little, it's almost half and half with the people now living in the territory, a slight Palestinian majority. But I would say whatever model uh, becomes the political solution, the crucial thing is that it has to come from the Palestinians and the Israelis themselves. I don't think we can, you know, tell them one state, two state or hybrid model. Um, the role for the U.S. and the international community is to use their powers to force the parties to stop fighting and start negotiating. So, you know, my basic point is here, uh, ceasefire is not enough. We should be pushing for a uh, process toward a political solution right now, a political process, a political solution, not a military solution, which neither side can impose. So I'm sure people have thoughts on those comments. Um, the other thing I'll comment on is Jill Stein's first week of her campaign just completed. Uh, she's mainly been messaging about the war in Israel-Palestine. She's been calling for a ceasefire and a war crimes investigation of Netanyahu and Biden. Um, I would like to see a positive peace policy for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as I was just talking about. She was asked about it in an interview with The Hill this week. And kind of like Cornel West, she spent a long time analyzing the situation without really offering policy solutions. I think she was implying a ceasefire. I don't even remember hearing that. She did the same thing with Ukraine. You know, she analyzed it. Russia was wrong to invade, but NATO provoked them. Uh, but that's kind of where she left it. Um, so, you know, I'd like to know what your uh, reactions to those interviews were. Uh, the one with the Hill and the one with Savvy Sabs this week. Um, if you saw them, um, I, I just say I wish she would foreground in, in terms of her responses because she always gets and always will get the spoiler question. And, you know, I would like to see a national popular ranked choice vote for president uh, be the first thing in response to the question about the spoiler problem. And as I think I've said here, I think she should demand that Biden join her in calling for that solution. And if Biden doesn't, then it's Biden that's perpetuating the spoiler problem. You know, flip it on them. Um, but it's the first week of her campaign, and I'm sure her messaging will get tighter as the campaign develops. And in the meantime, there's nothing stopping any of us from advocating uh, ranked choice voting or, you know, a peace process in Israel-Palestine. So. I'll leave it there and, and let's go to comments and questions. Amy L. Sachs, I woke up this morning to news that Zuckerberg's Meta has locked out Dr. Stein. Move surprise, laugh out loud. F big box social media, it blows. Yeah, um, Meta locked her out of her uh, Instagram. And, you know, the response is the same thing I got when Twitter uh, cut me out for, I guess, twice during my campaign. And they give these responses that say, that there's nothing you can do. Um, but we got back on, I think, because a lot of people complained publicly. So, you know, I urge people to, uh, you know, write letters to the editor, write letters to Meta, 
saying what gives, you know, Dr. Stein has a right to be on that social media platform. And the fact that uh, she was arbitrarily, you know, kicked off, she's locked out of her account is, uh, is terrible. You know, so this is a, you know, basically a free speech issue, even if it's, you know, a private actor, uh, they have a platform that is essentially a public, it's like the public square. So the public certainly has an interest. And so I hope people will speak out against that. Yeah, that is uh, not a good development. It looks like Joe is tossing his campaign into the trash. Yeah, he's certainly going against public opinion. The, the, the latest poll I saw this morning is that only 32% of the American public supports what Israel is doing, which Biden is backing. I mean, he's qualifying that saying, you know, follow the, the, the uh, laws of war in terms of humanitarian law and so forth. And he's calling for a humanitarian pause, not really a ceasefire. So, uh, Humanitarian aid can get into Gaza, but uh, and you know, reporting says in the background he's, you know, telling uh, Netanyahu and, and the Israelis to, uh, you know, not be so blatant and just you know killing all these Palestinians because it's going to isolate them, and of course isolate the U.S. along with the Israelis. Um, but he's in deep trouble. Um, you know, somebody suggested to me, and they have a contact, that Jill should go to Dearborn, Michigan, which is a major uh, community for Arabs and particularly Palestinians, and speak about this issue there. I mean, Biden will hate that, but, you know, he's he's like leading with his chin, and, and you know, I think the green should hit him, you know, until he changes his policy. So, yeah, I... It, what a terrible choice. I mean, I think one thing is Biden is so bad and Trump is so bad. Um, they are, I don't know if they're there yet, but, you know, in 2016, when when we did pretty good, Jill got over a million votes, over 1% of the vote. I forget the actual number. I think it was maybe one and a half million. Um, that was a year when we had the two most unpopular major party candidates to date in terms of favorability ratings. Hillary Clinton was low and, and Donald Trump was even lower. And I think uh, the two of them may be uh, reaching below what, what Clinton and Trump reached in 2016. So that's why we're seeing in the polls that we have now, uh, third party candidates are polling substantial numbers compared to like 2020 when we were really marginalized when it was anybody but Trump. So, you know, Joe, uh, Robert Kennedy's between 17 and 22%. Uh, Cornell West was as high as 8% until Jill got in. The latest poll has both of them at 3%. Uh, and then Manchin, I think, was polled. I forget his percentage. It was in between. So, you know, that's uh, many more people want to uh, want an alternative to, to Biden and Trump. And so, you know, it's an opportunity for us to get a substantial vote and leverage that into changing the political debate and putting our policies on the table, policies that need to be discussed. We've done that despite, you know, relatively low uh, numbers in presidential races with the Green New Deal. Um, I think Medicare for all, and I would hope a 
Medicare for All is a community-controlled national health service rather than just national health insurance because it corporatized the whole medical system and it's it's raising costs and, and uh, hurting uh, service. Um, I hope that would be something we can we can put into this campaign, along with uh, challenging the uh, just the old, the bloated military budget and all the overseas commitments we're we're making that aren't necessary. So a lot of issues we can raise, and this may be a good year uh, to raise them. Not just our presidential candidate, but I hope we have a number, and I hope it grows of Greens running for the House as well as state legislature and, and local elections. Richard Pink, how can you believe some sort of kumbaya movement when the two-state solution has been used as a cover for genocide since it became a point of negotiations? I don't think it's ever really seriously been negotiated. Uh, the Israelis didn't negotiate seriously, and certainly Hamas and uh, the Islamic side of the Palestinian movement uh, didn't want to negotiate it. But, you know, you look at the polling, it's still, its support has lowered on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side, but it's still more popular than a one-state solution or a hybrid solution. Um, the point is, uh, you know, we, we got to push... Maybe not a kumbaya movement, but a pragmatic compromise where both sides get their basic interests recognized and they find a way to live together. Um, you know, they don't have to love each other. They just have to agree not to kill each other. And that's what we need, a political solution instead of this uh, endless military uh, confrontation. The other thing about a two-state solution, I think I've said this before, is that it has the international community behind it. You know, UN Resolution 242 and many subsequent resolutions affirming that for a two-state solution based on the pre-1967 borders. Um, that I, you know, I think is the is the lever to get negotiations started. And they may lead to a different kind of solution, but the point is to get them talking and negotiating instead of uh, shooting at each other. Via email, response to investigations into New York City's Mayor Eric Adams. Okay, that's about uh, straw donations on behalf of uh, Turkish interests. And uh, the FBI went into his uh, fundraiser's uh, apartment and, you know, took the uh, I guess the phone and the uh, computer, um, they have reason to believe straw donations were made. They took Eric Adams' phone uh, last week to examine it. Um, so we'll see where it leads. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were straw donations. A number of uh, New York City politicians have been caught doing that, along with, uh, you know, politicos or political operatives, um, Dinesh D'Souza got caught and guilty of a felony for doing that for some right-wing candidate down there. Um, you know, we'll have to see whether Adams was aware of it or it was going on behind his back. That happened to John Liu, uh, who was leading in the mayoral race back when, uh, what's his name, the guy before uh, 
Eric Adams, uh, blanking on his name. Um, he was leading until it was discovered that one of his fundraisers was doing straw donations. Straw donations are when uh, somebody gives money to somebody else to make a donation because the first somebody has already contributed the maximum allowed. So they give the money to somebody else who can get their money into the campaign under another name. That's called a straw donation. It's illegal. And that's what they're looking at. And, uh, you know, we'll see whether Adams is uh, uh, culpable for what happened or it was done under his nose, like it happened with John Lou. But it hurts him. I mean, it hurt John Lou. I mean, that was the end of John Lou's campaign. Via email, thoughts on the contentious UAW ratification votes. Well, that was interesting. I guess it's, you know, Two to one or 60-40, uh, they've all passed. Um, maybe not finally, but that's what the count is, and it's almost done. Um, so it looks like the contracts are going to be ratified. But it tended to be the more senior uh, workers who felt they didn't get enough out of the contract, and that was their issue. Because even with the substantial wage increases um, and other changes in the in the contract, they're still not back to where they were in the 80s and 90s when they started working in terms of what they're taking home. So they felt uh, the union could have got more. So they voted against it. Um, the younger workers, the newer workers really got a lot out of it because they're ending the uh, tiers. They're getting uh, raises that catch them up to the higher tier. So it was a really good deal for them. And, and they're the ones I think put the contract over the top. Um, you know, the question now is whether the UAW uh, and particularly the reformers and UAWD, the what's it, United, United, Uniting All Workers for Democracy is what that stands for, whether that caucus, that movement can consolidate and keep pushing and whether UAW can now go and organize the non-union shops at Toyota and Honda and uh, BMW and Mercedes that have set up shop in the right to work states in this country. And actually there are more auto workers employed at their plants than there are in the big three that are unionized. Um, so that's the interesting question going forward. But uh, I think overall it's gonna have a positive impact including on other industries that have contracts coming up. So overall, uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's really a positive development. <clears throat> Vicki Corden, these social media platforms do not want Greens or Williamson. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a policy or a consequence of uh, algorithms that flag these people for things they say. Um, but whatever it is, it's, it's not, I mean, them getting, you know, deplatformed is not what should happen. And, you know, I argued in 2020 that uh, these media platforms that are essentially monopolies, and that tends to happen in these network platforms because everybody wants to be on the platform that everybody's on. So one of those platforms tends to get the audience, whether it's Facebook or Amazon, or, or now it seems uh, uh, Instagram, 
you know, of those types of platforms, they become the one everybody wants to be on because everybody's there or they think everybody's there. So it's it kind of naturally monopolizes. So when you have a monopoly, that's a case where competition doesn't, uh, you know, uh, pro provoke better service. Uh, it tends to undermine good service because the monopolies can get away with whatever they want to. That's a classic case for social ownership. And when it comes to media, social ownership, the question is, how do you govern it socially? And I would argue that uh, the boards that govern it should be selected by sortition, like we do juries from jury pools. And the only limitation would be if somebody doesn't want to serve if they get selected. Um, that way you get a random sample that reflects society and you get a you're going to get a better, more democratic governance than if you had elections for these positions where, you know, the money in our society would certainly dominate and uh, it would skew the, the governance toward the rich. So those are my thoughts on how to handle some of these social media platforms. The other alternative is to break them up, you know, do the antitrust thing. And I think you need to look case by case in each platform and what it what it does and how people interact with it to decide whether social ownership or antitrust is the most appropriate solution. Violet Content Boutique. It looks like the labor movement is the thing that's got a chance to save our culture. Uh, it certainly needs to be part of the solution, no doubt. Uh, it is the biggest, uh, organized movement that is inherently progressive, representing the working class. It's by far the largest, it's got the most resources. Um, but as we used to say in labor notes, we wanna put the movement back into the labor movement. And that's what's been missing. And, and now we're at a point where there's a lot of movement. We saw that with the UPS strike or almost strike, but contract battle, now with the UAW. And we're seeing it with uh, initiatives from below that the big unions have ignored or not uh, organized in, like Amazon, like Starbucks. So yeah, there's a lot of movement going on and, and we've got to sustain that and expand it. And then, you know, that will help, you know, certainly address the question of inequality, which is just keeps getting worse. I mean, that's the thing undermining, another thing undermining Biden while the macroeconomic indicators in terms of employment and uh, gross domestic product and uh, inflation are going in the right direction, the inequality leaves so many people having trouble making ends meet that those larger indicators don't reflect the hardship that they're going under. So they don't think Biden's uh, helping them and they're right. I mean, his policies, and it's not just Biden, it's the whole damn federal government. Um, you know, the Republicans have undermined some of the half-decent things Biden tried to do, like Build Back Better, um, or the uh, child uh, credit for uh, the child, what's it called, the child credit that was part of the COVID response and got eliminated. And that did so much to reduce poverty. It's the best anti-poverty program we've had since Social Security. And, you know, it's it's something that we need to fight for. It should be part of our campaigns this year or this coming year. Um, 
But of course, the Republicans are part of that problem too. But Biden get you know he's the president; he's going to take the blame. And uh, a strong labor movement would really help us advance on those policies, those progressive economic policies. Frankie Lee, Howie, how do you think Gaza can get some emergency help? People are dying from lack of food, water, power, and now almost no hospital care. Well, I mean, you've got to increase the number of supplies coming in through the Rafah crossing from Egypt. Before this war broke out, about 500 trucks were going in to supply Gaza every day. Now, on the best days, they get 100. And, you know, they didn't get anything for a couple of weeks, and they started getting a trickle of like 20 trucks. Now it seems to be about 100 trucks. It's obviously inadequate. So we've got to keep demanding uh, that more trucks go through that uh, Rafa crossing and that uh, – you know, a ceasefire would enable the aid to get to where it's needed. And that's what we need to push for. That's how we're really going to get the aid in there. You know, humanitarian pauses what, you know, people like Biden and actually Bernie Sanders are calling for to get the aid in. So, I mean, I don't know what that means. You get people hydrated so then they can be killed when they're hydrated. I mean, you've got to stop the, the carnage. So I think that's what we really need to get the help that people need, and they need it now. I mean, you know, people are dying from dehydration. Uh, one of the agencies, I forget which one, in the UN, I believe, was saying, you know, there's starvation going on now, there now. And then, of course, you know, the hospitals are not only shut down, there's not medicine for people that need it, you know, whether they're diabetics or um you know, people that need surgery because they got hurt in bombings. There are no anesthetics. There's no antiseptics. I mean, there's nothing left. So, you know, this is a huge crisis. And that's why we got to be out in the streets, keep pushing these demands. And, you know, a ceasefire uh, that that is extended as long as we can extend it. And, you know, what I've been advocating is that's got to become a uh, it's going to be turned from just a ceasefire in the military conflict into a movement on a political process uh, to get a political solution instead of returning to the military solutions that are no solutions. Violated content boutique. So disappointed in Bernie on this genocide issue. I know he lost a lot of family in the Holocaust, but he's spoken up for Palestine in the past. Yeah, he. I, I, I read something where one of his staffers said, you know, the Hamas atrocities really affected him. And that's understandable. You know, he, he wants the military solution to Hamas, which I think, you know, the costs are too great in terms of other Palestinians. That's why I think if they went to a political process, had new elections in Palestine, Hamas would be uh, marginalized within the Palestinian political spectrum. They would be part of it. The Islamic uh, sentiment, you know, does represent a part of the Palestinians, but it's a minority. I think that's a better way to deal with Hamas than try to uh, destroy it militarily. I mean, we should have learned from the so-called war on terror. Terror is not a thing. It's an idea. 
is not a physical thing you can destroy. It's an idea. And the more uh, killing we do in Gaza, the more people are going to want revenge and become uh, terrorists themselves. And that's it just makes it worse, not better. Via email, response to the suspension of academics over their support for Palestine. Yeah, that's the wrong response to statements you disagree with. You know, bad speech, if that's what you think it is, you know, respond with other speech. I mean, that was what Judge Brandeis said in his famous uh, dissent on, on free speech uh, back during World War I. And it's so ironic that Brandeis University is one of those places that, in this case, uh, banned one of the Palestinian, uh, pro-Palestinian student groups. Um, you know, the way to deal with that is not banning. And, you know, that just the speech continues. It's just sort of underground. You know, the better response is, you know, better speech. Respond. Argue it out. You know, let people say what they say, and then you can critique what they said. And that's what democracy depends on. So, you know, and, and universities of all places, which are supposed to be, you know, places of inquiry and debate and dispute, uh, should be the last place where this kind of repression is going on. So, you know, I think it's the wrong response from these uh, university administrations. via email. Thoughts on advertising, advertisers pausing ads from X, i.e. Twitter. Um, yeah, I think that's one way of telling Elon Musk to shut the F up. I mean, the last thing he said, affirming the, you know, racist replacement theory uh, is just uh, incredible. I mean, the richest guy in the world is... Uh, affirming some of the most, you know, racist thoughts from the gutters. Um, so I, I have no problem with advertisers trying to send a message to Musk and his ex. I mean, what a stupid branding move. Everybody knew what Twitter was. X, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk is one piece of work. In any case, I, I'm fine with advertisers doing that. That's it's a form of speech for them. And um, it has some leverage. So because X is having trouble, although Elon Musk can probably lose all the money he's invested in that and he'd still be stupid rich. Via email, comment on the Colorado Trump on the ballot case. Yeah, I guess a judge uh, threw that out uh, last night or maybe this morning anyway, um, you know, that relates to the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, where the third section said, uh, and it was aimed at the, you know, leaders of the Confederacy, you know, they, because they tried an insurrection to overthrow the government, they could not run for office in that government. Um, you know, the, the I think the legal complication, not being a lawyer, but 
just my layperson's view of it is Trump hasn't been convicted by a court of that yet. Um, although I think all the evidence is pretty clear that, you know, he did try to overturn that election uh, in many ways. So um, that's all I can say. You know, it, it didn't work in Colorado. I think it's before about a dozen other uh, state uh, courts. So we'll see what happens in the other cases. Most courts have also been saying that the primaries are different from the general. Yes, that's that's right. I've heard that too. Well, I see Amy L. Sachs in the uh, the chat uh, notes that there's a glut of unused housing in many parts of the U.S. There it is. Uh, in many parts of the U.S., but the rich sit on it. Government needs to actively seize it, I think. Yeah, um, the, the rich are those uh, hedge funds and private equity firms on Wall Street. And since the financial crisis in 2008, when a lot of people were foreclosed out of their homes, uh, these private equity firms bought up the housing. So they've become the biggest landlords in the country. And if they can't get the rent they want or the sale price they want, uh, they, they let it go unoccupied and just pay the property taxes. Um, and I agree, government should socialize much of the housing so it can be provided to people uh, at at rents they can afford. In Berlin, they had a referendum where the people said uh, the city government should seize, uh, I guess it was the largest private landlords in the city and make that housing, public housing at affordable rents. The, the referendum wasn't binding. Uh, and I think they're still debating whether they're going to implement it. I think that government is a coalition of the Social Democrats and the Greens. But I think that is the way we should go. Um, you know, to really provide affordable housing, we need to build out public housing. There's a law called the Faircloth Amendment from the Clinton years that says uh, we can't build any more public housing units. So the only new units can be built when other units have been destroyed or demolished. Uh, so we have less than 1% of the housing stock in this country is socially owned, publicly owned. In other countries, particularly in Western Europe, it's double digits. In the city of Vienna in Austria, and this goes back to the early 1930s when they had a left-wing government, um, what is it? Two-thirds of, of the housing there is either socially owned by the city or cooperatively owned by the tenants. Um, and what that does to the units that remain privately owned they have to compete with the social and cooperative units, which operate not for profit, but at cost to provide affordable housing. That's the direction we got to go. Uh, we can't rely on the private sector to provide the housing we need. It, it never has and is getting worse with these 
Wall Street guys owning so much of the property. And, you know, it just goes to show how much this neoliberal market-oriented approach to social problems has gone when we realize that China, which is now having a crash of this housing market, instead of building public housing, relied on private developers. And they got the same result everybody else gets. Um, and they got a problem there. And, and particularly for the more than 100 million migrant workers who come in from the rural areas, work these factories that are really sweatshops, and they can't afford the housing. So they, you know, they rent a small apartment and they just pile in there like, you know, you know, sardines in a can. And it's uh, just not the way to do it. So, you know, it's not just the U.S. where this is a problem. It's in much of the world. But I, I think you're right. You know, the government should be providing the housing that the private sector will not. Christine Smallhorn, real estate blogger, says they're leaving these properties empty on purpose so they can drive up rent mortgage prices. That's right. Scarcity uh, drives up the price. And so they are manipulating the market. And as the biggest players in the market, they can get away with that. I mean, their ownership of all these properties, just because of what's being pointed out here, says at least we should do antitrust. So that, uh, you know, the biggest real estate uh, owners can't manipulate the market to drive up rents and mortgages. Amy Sex, Violet at Content Boutique. I guess she's messaging Violet. When Gail McLaughlin in California was still a green, she talked about using eminent domain to empower the poor instead of the rich for a change. Yeah, they were talking about eminent domain, uh, I believe, for housing. Um, I'm trying to remember the details, but yeah, Gail was definitely... Uh, doing that. That was during the financial crisis when she was the mayor and they were talking about taking over properties and making them, you know, city-owned properties to provide affordable housing to people in Richmond, California. And uh, so, you know, Greens have put this program forward. I certainly did in my 2020 campaign. I said, you know, instead of providing public subsidies for private developers, which cost more per unit than providing public housing, we should just provide public housing, get rid of that Faircloth Amendment and build out public housing until everybody is housed. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of House Speaker Johnson? I don't know much about him. Well, he's, he's a right-wing extremist. He uh, wants to cut Social Security, Medicare. Uh, he doesn't want to provide aid to Ukraine, although he says he wants to help Ukraine, he doesn't want to provide military aid. Um, he just, uh, you know, got that budget deal with the Democrats that left out the military aid to Ukraine and Israel and, you know, billions for more border security, which is not a solution to that issue. Um, you know, I, I just wonder how long he's going to last because Although he comes out of the right wing of the Republican conference, he's already pissed them off because they're so extreme. Any compromise for them is a problem. They don't really want to govern. They just want to posture. And uh, 
now he's a target. So I think he's going to have a hard time, and he's to the extent he, he gets what he wants, it won't be good. Scout Trooper 164, I heard Ukrainians cross the Dnipro, or it's actually the Dnieper River, and maybe digging in. Good for them. Some progress needed to be made. Yeah, that's very interesting from the military point of view. Uh, if they can do that, uh, they're pretty close to Crimea. Um, and the Russians did not build defenses like they did in Zaporizhia, where the you know, counteroffensive was focused. Um, so the problem is getting supplies across the Dnieper River, which uh, all the bridges across it were blown up. That's what the Ukrainians did. Uh, so the Russians didn't have supplies on the uh, northwest side of the river, what's called the right bank, uh, and had to retreat. And that's how the Ukrainians liberated that part of Kherson province, including Kherson city, uh, without destroying those communities in those cities, like the Russians do when they go on offensive. You know, they, they'll, if they want to take over a city, they blow it to smithereens. They've been doing that since Grozny. They did it in Aleppo. They did it in Mariupol. And now that they're across the Dnieper River, uh, they are destroying Kherson city with artillery fire, just destroying the residences, the infrastructure, anything they can hit to the point where while people stayed in Kherson city when the Russians occupied it, although there was a lot of and a lot of evidence of, you know, torture and they went through the filtration process where the Russians tried to weed out loyal Ukrainians and, you know, detain them, uh, in many cases, torture them, um, but they didn't leave their city. Now they've had to leave their city because the Russians are bombing them. So, I mean, one objective, I think, is to push the line of contact uh, further away so the Russians can't bomb Kherson City and other communities on the right, right bank of the Dnieper River. Um, we'll see how that goes. It's, it's a tough position because of the supply issue for the Ukrainians. Um, but they definitely... They got about five beachheads on the uh, left bank of the Dnieper River, where the which the Russians have control. So you know we'll see how that develops. But you hear a lot that you know the, the Ukrainians have lost the war in just a matter of time before they surrender. I think that's uh, you know the Russians say that, and a lot of people repeat that. But you know I, the way I look at it is the. You know, little Ukraine fought big Russia uh, when they invaded, and it's taken back more than half the land Russia once had. And while the front line has not moved a lot since, uh, well, throughout 2023, um, that doesn't mean it's always going to be like that. If Ukraine loses, you know, arms assistance from the West, you know, Russians are going to, you know, flood into the rest of Ukraine. Uh, on the other hand, the Russian military doesn't seem to have good morale they could break at some point uh under a, a ukrainian offensive so I, I don't think it's as stalemated as a lot of analysts think it's i think it's still you know uh, could go either way
via email, thoughts on Russia moving to declare LGBTQIA activists extremists. Well, actually, they've done that. They've made it illegal to say anything positive about LGBTQ people. Um, it made it uh, basically illegal to uh, publicly uh, say that's who you are. What they're doing now is declaring feminism an extremist ideology. And there's legislation to criminalize uh, feminists. So, yeah, Russia is very repressive, socially conservative. And uh, that's one reason the Ukrainians don't want to live under Russian rule. Via email, what should Greens be focusing on right now ahead of 2024? Well, I think the immediate focus is pushing for a ceasefire, and then I would advocate for uh, the U.S. to use its leverage on Israel to, to move it toward going for a political solution instead of continuing this military campaign. Um, we got to keep focusing on climate, uh, the climate you know, the, the annual UN climate conference, the COP conference is coming up uh, last day of this month into the first couple of weeks of December in the United Arab Emirates under the, uh, you know, hosting of uh, a guy in the UAE who is head of their uh, gas company, I believe, their state-owned gas company. You know, that doesn't look like it's going to be that productive, but it does give us an opportunity to you know, point out what we need to do. We need to keep demanding more of our state and our federal governments in terms of climate action. I think that's another high priority. I think we should be uh, working on these ranked choice voting and particularly proportional ranked choice voting to get proportional representation in legislative bodies. There are a lot of initiatives coming up in 2024. We just had, I believe, seven in 2023, we won all of them, most of them to initiate new RCV uh, jurisdictions. One of them was to defend one that the opponents tried to repeal. Uh, we won all those, so we have momentum there. So I think that's another issue we need to be focusing on. Um, we should be focusing on ballot access right now in most of the states where the Greens do not have ballot access. They can start petitioning now. And we are doing it in Arizona. Utah is coming up on a deadline. They need help. It's not that big a petition. They may not make it, but, uh, you know, that's that's something, you know, Green should be supporting. Um, so in the end, there are about, I don't know, eight or ten states where you can't start until next year. But the rest of them, we can start now. So, you know, if you're in one of those states, uh, I hope you start petitioning. Uh, to put us on the ballot for 2024. I think we're going to do a lot better getting ballot access. I mean, the problem my campaign had was COVID made it hard to petition, uh, the lockdowns. Um, and then we had a primary and a lot of state parties uh, wanted to wait until they found out who the nominee was. And they waited till like the third week of July when we formally were nominated. And then they had only three to six weeks I mean, in some cases, one week to finish their petitions, and they didn't do it. So we ended up with 30 ballots instead of uh, 45 that we had in 2016. I think this year 
uh, with an early start, we can do as well as we did in 2016, if not better. Jill's saying we can do better. Um, I haven't seen the ballot access plan. I've talked to a few people about it, but I definitely think that's possible. So that's another thing we should be focused on. Um, so I don't know. That's about four things I gave you. Um, and then, of course, locally, you have issues that people are very concerned about. And that's where we need to be uh, visible and active in providing positive solutions to win people over at the grassroots. So, you know, it varies from community to community. A lot of them, it's housing. A lot of it's police brutality. Um, it's city planning. It's energy. I mean, all kinds of issues. Uh, it's potholes. You know, is, is the cities, are they headed over a cliff in terms of infrastructure? We got one here in New York, you know, in the clean water. And I think a lot of other states are probably at this point. When the Clean Water Act passed in the early 70s, a lot of sewage and, and water treatment facilities were built. Now they're 50 years old and they're starting to fall apart. They need to be uh, rehabilitated or new plants uh, built. And the financing for that is not there. We just passed a referendum in the last election in New York that increased the amount uh, communities could go into debt to finance those things uh, that went past the previous statutory limit. I mean, those are, are major issues. So uh, local issues, again, is, is where, you know, as the famous saying, all politics is local. That's where Greens will expand our base because we're relevant to the immediate concerns of people in their own communities. Via email, response to the Biden G meeting. Well, I, it's good they met. It's good the militaries are talking again. Um, I think it's good that they talked about economic cooperation, uh, given that the U.S. under Trump and continued under Biden were kind of protectionist and antagonistic to China. Um, I, well, on the one hand, it's good that we're diversifying our uh, supply chains so we're not dependent on China for you know, drugs or, or computer chips uh, or other vital things. Um, every, you know, large country or, or, you know, group of countries should, should have that diversity so they're not dependent on distant supply sources. But on the other hand, you know, the trade between China and the U.S. is a huge part of both economies and the world economy. So it's good that they uh, uh, smooth some of those things out and are talking about improving them. Um, you know, Biden was asked, does he still think Xi is a dictator? And, he, you know, it's Biden, like, you know, he's famous for gas and he just, what pops into his head, he says. I think he could have had a more diplomatic response. I don't know if people have seen... Uh, Anthony Blinken's face when Biden said that, but it was pained. Um, you know, he, Biden could have been more diplomatic responding to that. You know, that's the first thing he says after that meeting. Didn't, you know, uh, extend, you know, the good things that, that came out of it. Um, they did make a commitment to triple renewable energy in the world jointly uh, by 2030. That's good. The other side of it is that should replace 
fossil fuels. That was not so emphasized. One of the problems we have now is that, you know, solar and wind are so cheap that they are growing by leaps and bounds, but it's expanding the product the, the production of electricity rather than uh, replacing fossil fuels with renewables. So that part of the uh, agreement was missing. But on the whole, it's good they had the meeting and, uh, you know, let's hope uh, they keep talking because a war with China, like over, you know, Taiwan would be terrible. I believe Xi said he doesn't plan to militarily take Taiwan, which is good. We've had some of our hawks in this country say China's going to do it by 2025, which is speculation. Uh, there's good reporting. It's probably credible that China wants the capacity to do that by 2027. That doesn't mean they're going to do it. Um, but they have been, you know, fairly provocative toward Taiwan and Vietnam and the Philippines in terms of the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. So that, you know, the point is, it's good they're talking rather than talking at each other in a hostile way. It's good they're talking directly to each other. Wow. It's already an hour. Okay, well, as I said earlier, and let's put the link to uh, Promise Lee's article uh, up in the chat again. And for those of you who didn't hear at the beginning, we're going to have a guest next week, Promise Lee. He's a socialist activist from Hong Kong who's currently uh, based in Los Angeles, where he's a tenant organizer with the in Los Angeles, Chinatown. And uh, he's a prolific writer whose articles have appeared in Against the Current, Green Left, Jacobin, The Nation, many other publications. And we're going to discuss why we need socialist internationalism, not uh, multi-capitalist, multipolarity. And uh, Promise is going to talk about in reference, talk about that topic in reference to the different responses the left had to the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, where, you know, the consequence is the independent press has been shut down, the trade unions have been smashed, and uh, what little democracy was very compromised to begin with, Hong Kong had is pretty much extinguished. So uh, that's next week. And meanwhile, this week, I hope you're out there demanding a ceasefire and beyond. And uh, next week is Thanksgiving. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And we'll be uh, talking with Promise Lee on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So everybody take care. Love